Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. In this episode, I know that all of our episodes are like really good, but this one is like so freaking interesting. I literally cannot stand it. So we're talking about something that I think is like so interesting and I need to know more about. On today's episode, we are joined by Sarah Ahrens, where I ask her, how important is dust? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Finesse, and we have got an episode for you. So let me tell you how it all started. I was minding my own business a few months ago, and I scratched my arm in, like, the golden hour, and I saw, like, this dust fly off, which reminded me of this, like, clip from this... TV show that I used to watch when I was little that was hosted by Summer Saunders and they would do these random facts and she said that like 99% of dust was human skin cells. And then I was like, what the hell is dust? And then we discovered Dr. Sarah Ahrens, who is an assistant professor of earth sciences at UC San Diego's Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She studies mineral dust that is transported to polar regions and preserved in the ice core record. How are you? How are you doing? You doing good? I'm great. I'm here in San Diego. It stopped raining recently and the sun came out, so everything's good. Yay. Those atmospheric rivers have just been all up in California's face lately. Yeah, definitely. We were lucky. We didn't have any landslides down here, but a little bit north of us was hit pretty hard. There's actually a very interesting link between atmospheric rivers and dust. What the fuck? I just wasn't ready for the hard-hitting facts coming so fast at the beginning of our episode. What is the link between atmospheric rivers and dust? People started noticing that when you had dust transport from Asian deserts across the Pacific Ocean, that you had atmospheric rivers that would hit the West Coast of the United States. And so they came up with this hypothesis, basically, that dust in the atmosphere is acting as a nucleus for water vapor to kind of absorb onto the dust particle And so you get basically precipitation from dust transport. And it was verified by people basically collecting water during these atmospheric river events and measuring Asian dust in that water. So it's kind of a really cool way that the dust cycle or dust in the atmosphere is linked to water generation and deposition. Oh, my God. I was not even ready. That is so interesting. Which then aggressive other second question, are dust and dirt the same or different? Dust is basically defined as really fine particles of solid material. So it can be rock or it can be plastic. It can be like soot from wildfires or fossil fuel combustion. Any sort of solid material, if you're able to grind it up fine enough to be lifted into the atmosphere by wind that is defined as dust. And so when I say I work on mineral dust, it's basically I'm studying fine grain particles of rock that get blown up into the atmosphere. And so dirt is kind of defined as sitting on the ground, right? Uh. So it's like, you know, dirt is kind of similar to soil and that it also can be really fine grain, but it's grounded. And once it gets lifted up and transported, that's usually when it's called dust obsessed. If we were to take a dust sample like from my living room, I do have five cats, three dogs, the chickens don't come inside. There's like me and my husband and we put the dust under the microscope. What would be on that slide and like how would that dust have formed? Yeah, so because you're collecting it inside your house, a lot of it's going to be your dead skin. Ah. Um, your, 
<laughs> you're going to have a lot of hair, pieces of hair that's broken down, um, a lot of clothing material. No, not my ends. They're too healthy. <laughs> no, my my dust doesn't have any because I don't have split ends, actually. Not in our dust traps. There's no hair because our ends okay. are... Do you see how, like, solid those are? Yeah, those, like, look really... pretty, those look really good. No, thank you. I'm I'm so sorry. I'm not being a nightmare. Maybe it's your cat hair, your cat and dog hair. The, yeah, you're right. It's a cat. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's them. Because mm-hmm. they don't use JVN hair because we don't do animal testing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably a little bit of cat and dog hair. There's probably a little bit of bacteria, maybe like little tiny bits of bacteria, maybe a little bit of like fungus spores. Oh, mycology. Yeah, maybe a little bit of pollen, depending on the time of year and whether you have your windows open. Yeah, that that's pretty much what I would expect inside your house. So it's like just another situation of duality, like Yes, we're disgusting, but also we're gorgeous. And it's not our fault that we can't control that we shed like bajillions of skin cells. And that is, in fact, dust. And that's that's fine. But I am obsessed with all the different kinds of dust. I guess I never understood. Like, so there's mineral dust. What other dusts are there? I brought up plastic. Plastic is a really big topic right now. There's like a bunch of stuff going around about microplastics in the ocean. Recently, like a few years ago, there was a paper that was published about microplastic deposition in national parks. And there was a researcher who put up these dust traps in national parks in Utah. And she basically figured out how much microplastics are being deposited in really, really remote environments on an annual scale. So she went out there and sampled every few months or so and was able to tell like, okay, we have this many tons of plastic, tiny little particles of plastic that you can't really see with your naked eye falling in places where we shouldn't have them at all. Where do they come from? Yeah, a lot of it is coming from... um when you throw your clothes into the dryer. So like a lot of our clothes are made of synthetic material like plastics. And when you put them in the dryer, it's like tumbling around and you have to have some sort of like friction or agitation to like break up, you know, your material. And your dryer basically vents into the outdoors and that's how it gets into the outdoors. I mean, not to say like, you know, pollution too, right? If people throw their plastic bottles out in the road or whatever, it will break down and it'll eventually form microplastics too. So it's basically just humans that are leading to like higher rates of microplastics in the atmosphere. Would landfills contribute to that too? Like if just like the plastics in the landfills like break down over time and like wind and just like really little teeny tiny bits just get kind of like chipped away almost? Yeah, exactly. So wind and water are like two really good ways to break down things in the natural environment. And, you know, a landfill is anything but a natural environment. But like if you have plastic that's exposed and there's wind and rain that's hitting it, it'll break it down and then it'll be transported by the wind. Dust particles are usually the ones that are transported in the atmosphere smaller than 30 microns. And like for reference, like a human hair is about 70 microns in diameter. Most of the dust we're seeing is like five, less than five microns in diameter. Diameter, which is the whole way across. Yeah. And like the stuff that we collect in Antarctica in the ice is around one micron. So it's much, much smaller. We just got home from London and we were staying in like our friend's apartment. Like would their dust in like urban London be different than like, because like we live in Texas. So it'd just be like less like environmental, like pollens. And it would just be like more like tons of different people's skin cells because you're like on the subway and like just around other people. It depends on like how much 
I guess, exposure you have. So if you're going out on a subway and interacting with a lot of people, then you're probably picking up some material from them too. If you live like in a really wooded area with a lot of forest around there, you probably have a lot more pollen. If someone lives in like urban London, like in the middle of the city, there's probably more industrial dust. So things like soot. Oh, what would that be? Like, what are like those sooty, like, like industrial dusts? Like, is that just like broken down stuff? So people call it black carbon, black or brown carbon. And it's really small particles, even smaller than mineral dust, smaller than like a micron in diameter, which makes them worse for humans to breathe in because they can get further into your lungs. But it's basically just like, you know, fossil fuel combustion. When you drive a car, when you look at the exhaust, you can see those particles sometimes, basically like the smoke that's coming out of an exhaust. That's what black carbon is. And black carbon's like a type of dust? It's an aerosol. So, you know, scientists like to refer to any sort of particles that are in the atmosphere as aerosols. So not just dust, but also things like black carbon, sulfate, things that are byproducts of fossil fuel combustion. And those things that are in the atmosphere, they interact with incoming solar radiation. So they can basically block incoming solar radiation or um, reflect outgoing long-wave radiation. And that can have an influence or an impact on Earth's climate. So it can either warm or cool Earth's climate. So the amount of like these like black carbons coming out of like factories, would even like the methane from like livestock farming, like would that be like one of the things that, that we're talking about there? Methane and CO2, they're greenhouse gases, but aerosols, they they kind of act in like a similar way. So they're in the atmosphere. They have an effect on radiation. And radiation is like the amount of sunlight that we're receiving on Earth's surface at a given time period. And whatever's in the atmosphere matters a lot because the sunlight has to travel through that in order to reach Earth. And like the composition of it will influence like how much light is received at Earth's surface, but then also like how much heat is trapped on Earth's surface, if that makes sense. It does. And I like tracked that entire time. So yay. As a scientist who studies dust, do you remember a few months ago when people were showing that like, like slow motion camera of people like flushing their shitty toilet with like the thing open and it was saying like essentially this is why you should cover your toothbrush because like the shit particles really do like fling all over the place in your bathroom. So like as someone who studies like dust and particles as a scientist, like did you see that? I have always been very skeptical of keeping my toothbrush out next to my toilet for that reason. Oh no, she was right, you guys. No, you heard it here, probably third or whatever, but it's so, so it is true. So shit dust. And when you fart, you're basically like farting, fart shit dust, like shit dust. I mean, I think like if you're wearing clothes, you know, like the clothes kind of act as a filter. But didn't you see that thermal thing on TikTok that was like, it had a thermal camera and it was catching people at the subway farting. And you could totally see like this like little plume come through their <laughs> jeans. I'm just really surprised that like that is really like, there really is dust shit and I saw the look on your face so like you heard it here first guys like that whole toilet flushing with the thing open and your toothbrush out there like don't do it yeah it's like with the water too right so like you flush your toilet and it's like stirring really vigorously and like there's probably a little bit of water vapor that gets out too so I I keep my toothbrush in my cabinet shut I make sure it's shut 
every time I use it. So, wow. Okay. So then here's my second wellness slash beauty dust related question before we go back into science land. Okay. So just question. Like, do you know what dry exfoliating is like with those dry brushes when you like brush your skin with it? You know, it's like the dry exfoliation. Mm -hmm. Do you think that if I did that and like exfoliated with like a, you know, like a, like a physical, like schluffing exfoliant, like, do you think as a scientist, like if I was to be really good at exfoliating for like, like, you know, totally and completely clean a room. So it's like starting with no dust, then do one week where you're really exfoliating and then one week where you just don't do it at all. Do you think that it would create less dust like if you were really exfoliating or do you think it's like all a bunch of fucking hogs washes my grandma would say well have you seen that movie gattaca no no okay it's with ethan hawk and uma thurman and uh you should see it it's a good movie but basically it takes place in the future and ethan hawk's character he's impersonating somebody else and he's trying to make sure that none of his dna gets like left behind at the workplace and so he does that every morning. He scrubs himself like raw, basically, to try to reduce the amount of dry skin that's going to come off of him and like get onto his keyboard so that he won't be detected. So yeah, to answer your question, I think like if you do exfoliate a ton, it'll reduce the amount of dry skin dust that you have in your house for sure. So exfoliating is not a fucking sham. And you heard it here from like a dust literal scientist. Okay, so I'm obsessed. I Like, thank you for doing that detour with me. I needed it for my queer soul. Thank you. That was really life affirming and I loved every moment of it. So if you've ever seen one of my stand-up comedy shows, you'll know that like I do this thing that's like a hard right like which is when I go off track and I just like go so so far that's all we've done so far so I swear to god I'm going back into my questions that I have prepared so now you study like how dust travels so like how how and how far does dust travel like it can go through the air from China all the way to North America like how is it traveling yeah so you have to have enough dust to be like available right? It has to be sitting there and it has to be ready to go somewhere. And then you have to have energy to transport it. And that energy is wind. And so when the wind gusts are high enough, it lifts that dust up into the atmosphere. And it sometimes goes up into the stratosphere and is transported like thousands of miles. Um, it can be transported like across the Pacific Ocean. Dust from the Sahara Desert gets transported across the Atlantic Ocean and people can measure it in Florida or the Caribbean or even the Amazon. So the dust that we're measuring in Antarctica comes from like South America and Australia. So like we're getting stuff that's coming from like thousands and thousands of miles away. When I was living in New Orleans filming Queer Eye on our last season, I was observing these like gigantic swarms of dragonflies like over this like football field and then one of our previous getting curious guests who i think does regret giving me her cell phone number because every time i see an interesting insect i facetime her but um she was saying that those very dragonflies they literally like ride the atmospheric like jet streams a super far ass way so it's just so striking to me for how big the globe is but still how like interconnected it can still be like in these measurable sort of way. So like would volcanoes or like tornadoes or hurricanes ever like I was thinking like Mount St. Helens or like really big like volcanic eruptions through history. Like does that ever cause like more of a like 
you know, transportation of dust like to far flung places. Yeah, definitely. That's a really great way to get it into the upper atmosphere and transport it through like jet streams and trade winds to other locations. So there was an eruption in, I don't know how many years ago this was, but a volcanic eruption in Iceland. And there are all those airplanes that have been. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so like this is stuff that um, once it gets into the atmosphere and kind of gets in the, the predominant wind patterns, it gets like circulated around the globe. If it's big enough, it can also really disrupt Earth's climate. These mega eruptions can be detected like from like thousands to millions of years ago. Oh, like so we can still detect dust from like eruptions that happened like millions of years ago? Yeah, for millions of years ago, people look at like like soil profiles, for example. If you like dig a soil pit or you're looking at the rock record, you can often find um, thin layers of volcanic ash um, that can be dated. And you can figure out like which volcano it came from. In ice cores, if we have a volcanic ash layer, you basically look at like the uh, composition of the dust or the ash and you can figure out which volcano it came from. And then you know, okay, like this was the eruption that happened in 1773. So we know the age of this ice. So it's kind of used as like an independent way to date the ice. Fuck, that's interesting. I'm so tempted to jump ship for my next question to just go there. But I just will, because I think one thing I've learned already that I really didn't understand is that like the amount of dust, no matter what it comes from, whether it's like, from an eruption, pollution, whatever it is, it affects the atmosphere, which affects like, you know, temperature and like climate, global warming. Like there is there is a reason for us to be curious about like how much dust there is in the atmosphere. So like, do we know how much dust there is in the atmosphere? Is there a way that like scientists use to measure like the transparency of the atmosphere? Or, like how much dust is in it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I feel like you already know the answer to it. I was saying that dust absorbs or reflects light. It depends on the size and the composition of the dust, but we have satellites, right, that are just floating around in space and they have sensors on them. And they can basically like detect areas of absorption or reflection in the atmosphere. Oh. And so they can derive how much dust is in the atmosphere during a particular time period. The current estimates of how much dust is in the atmosphere on average, is about um, 20 teragrams at any given time. And a teragram is equal to a trillion grams. So it's a lot. It's like a huge amount of dust in the atmosphere at any given time. Because there's probably still dust from like Cleopatra or something. Like all the humans like through time, like they're like little... Because once dust is formed, can it ever break down like all the way? Like will my skin cell dust be on this earth for like 500,000 years. So really I will live on or no. So there's a lifetime for how long dust can be in the atmosphere. You have to have enough energy to keep it in the atmosphere. So the wind will transport it, but eventually like that wind will die off um, or weaken. And then the dust will settle out of the atmosphere. So you can have the dust fall on land or in the ocean or on glaciers and ice sheets. And so those are like our sinks. We call them sinks. It's like where things go. And when they're deposited in those sinks, they kind of get preserved and saved for us to look at, to look at like, okay, 
what was the dust looking like a thousand years ago or a million years ago? So it's a cycle. So the, the, you have your sources of dust, which are like deserts. We also have a lot of dust coming from where um, glaciers are retreating. That's a new source of oh. dust. And then you have your sinks. So your sinks are where the dust is deposited and that can be the ocean, um, land and ice. So you study mineral dust. So what's particular if we if if we don't know already, what's particular about mineral dust as compared to other ones? Like does mineral dust just like exclusively come from like rocks and minerals? I mean, when I'm measuring dust in a sample, there's a lot of other stuff in there, but I I don't care about that stuff so much. I mostly just care about the mineral dust and that's all coming from the breakdown of rocks. So as rocks are weathered or basically broken down, from rock into fine grain sediment, that's what I'm interested in looking at. And, and I care about it because of the ecological significance of it. So I'm um, thinking about like, you know, if this dust was deposited on land in the mountains or in the surface ocean, what would it do to life in that area? Does it have critical nutrients that would help organisms in those areas thrive? So that's like kind of the underlying questions that we're after a bit. So like what kind of mineral dusts like will you find? Is there like quartz mineral dust and like like flint mineral dust or like limestone? Like is it like every type of rock imaginable mineral dust? Yeah. So a lot of it is like clay minerals. So it's super fine grained. So it's not like a primary mineral. A primary mineral would be something like quartz or like zircon. Sometimes we find that stuff, but mostly it's clay minerals. In some of our samples, we've found pieces of diatoms. You know, they live in the surface ocean and like they get also lifted up into the air and transported and deposited. And so like we find living things in our samples. But those are like marine creatures, those diatoms, but they're so lightweight that they can get swept like off the ocean. And then you find them like their little dead sea creature body because it got lifted out of the water. So they're like little dried up things. Yes, we find their little dead bodies in our ice, you know, from like a hundred thousand years ago. We're like, oh, okay, well, it must have been open ocean conditions during this time period because we found these diatom, you know, shells in our sample. Wow. So, and then I think we know like where it's found, like often mineral dust is found in like the sinks, right? Like that's where it's deposited, like, Mm -hmm. which is like your land, surface ocean, glaciers. What was the other ones you said? I have like a schematic I could show you. I fucking love schematics. We are big fans of schematics around here. Okay, cool. So um, this is a schematic that I use a lot. So on the left-hand side, we have our source, which is our desert. And you have to have like enough wind to lift this up into the atmosphere. And so you're transporting this dust in the atmosphere. And then you have a lot of scattering of solar radiation or absorption. So like sometimes those dust particles can like basically absorb that heat from the sun. You have dust that's deposited in the surface ocean. So it's delivering nutrients to the surface ocean. But a lot of that dust basically sinks through the water and is preserved in the marine sediment record. And so people go out and they drill these cores in the ocean and they get these records of dust that are like millions of years long. I talked a little bit already about like dust and atmospheric rivers and like, you know, cloud formation. So it's basically like it's easier for water to condense around something that's already there. 
So if you have a dust particle in the atmosphere, that water will condense more easily around it. And you can have mm-hmm. like atmospheric river generation. You have uh, dust deposited on land and we can, we can monitor this like with modern dust collectors. I just like set these up out in the forest and like go and collect them every once in a while. And then you have dust that makes its way to the polar regions and it's deposited on ice sheets and glaciers. And we can look at like ice cores um, or we could also look at lake sediment cores too. That's like the source. And then these are all the sinks that exist for dust. That is so cool. What does like an ice core or like the lake core tell us about what was going on like millions of years ago or even hundreds of years ago? Yeah, so that's a really good question. When we're thinking about dust, there's like a lot of things that can influence like how much dust is in the atmosphere at any time. And um, one of them is like how much dust there is. So like the availability of it. And that really depends on whether or not it's dry. So if it's dry and you don't have a lot of like rain, you're going to have more dust that's um, available. It's going to be dustier conditions. So if you like are looking deeper in time and you measure a time period where it's dustier, then you can say like, okay, this time period was probably drier than this time period because there's more dust in our record. If you're trying to figure out where that dust came from, Um, you can use isotopes to fingerprint where it came from. So that's like what I do a lot of is like fingerprinting where the dust came from, which continent it came from. And if you know which continent it came from, then you can say like, all right, the wind was blowing in this direction during this time period. And if it changes over a different climate period, then you can say something about the way that predominant wind directions are shifting as a result of a changing climate. Does that ah, make sense? Yes, because like right now, like in our latitude, like in North America, like the weather usually goes like from west to east, but maybe mm-hmm. like a hundred million years ago, it was going like east to west, like maybe it was reversed or just like different like jet flows. So you can like figure out if things were going a super different way a long time ago or the yeah. same way a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. There was like a really cool paper that was published a few years ago where these scientists were looking at two marine sediment cores in the Pacific Ocean. So the westerly winds are like the predominant wind pattern in North America. So you have like wind that's blowing from the west towards the east. And like if it's warmer, people think that there's this poleward migration of that wind pattern. And this study confirmed it through dust. So they're like, we see a shift in the amount of dust that's coming from this region to the more northern Uh, marine sediment core. And so they were able to show for the first time that during warm periods, you actually have shifts in the positions of these predominant wind patterns. How cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was a really great study. So we touched on this a little bit, but I want to go deeper. So we learned from Dr. Marsha Allen. She was teaching us like how she determines the age of water from like the groundwater samples that she works with. How do you like determine the age of dust? It is hard. So, I mean, the stuff uh, that we are measuring in ice cores, we usually know the age of the ice that we're looking at. And so it's like if you have a a paleoclimate record that's dated well, then you know, okay, like, well, this dust fell at this depth, right? It's in this depth in this ice core record. And we know the age of it from there. Um, We don't actually know how old the dust is. We only know 
how long ago it was deposited in that sink. Does that uh, make sense? Yeah, it's like you don't know when it originated from, but you can reasonably say like, okay, it was deposited like three million years ago or you know yeah. 30,000 years ago or whatever you're measuring. Yeah, exactly. So it's really hard to figure out like the age of material. You can date rocks. You can figure out how old rocks are, but when it's in the dust form, it becomes trickier and trickier. So what's the deal with this paleo dust? Is it like a fad diet where you can eat all the butter and meat you want, but you can't eat carbs or something? Like, yeah, what's this paleo dust? Yeah, so paleo dust basically just means like uh, past dust. So dust preserved in the paleoclimate record. Ah. Yeah, so when I'm talking about um, marine sediment cores or ice cores or lake sediment cores, if we're looking at dust in those records, that's paleo dust because it is not modern dust. It, it was dropped in that sink and it has been preserved there since it was dropped. When you're studying an ice core, like how long is that sample of ice? Is it like 50 feet long? Can it be like a foot long? Is it from like a mile down in the glacier? Like where are these cores coming from? Yeah. So most of the work that I've done in Antarctica, the the ice has come from the Taylor Glacier, which is about a 40-minute helicopter ride from McMurdo. So your ass went to fucking Antarctica. Yes. Did you read that article in The Atlantic about that guy who went to Antarctica? It literally took me like an hour and 15 minutes to read. And it was like a really good article. But it, they were measuring, they'd like drop the sensors like under the ice to see how fast the glaciers were melting. But just the story of them, like, dealing with the Antarctic, like, was so harrowing. And, like, I was just like, you couldn't paint. Like, there's not enough money in the world, even if I was going to save humanity. Like, I just could not do it. And then I think the first time that you said that, it was, like, going over my head. And then in my head, I was like, did I interview someone about that? And then I was like, no, it was that fucking article. Because my Mark was like, my husband was like, what are you reading? And I was like, Shh, don't talk to me. I have to, like, finish this. But you did that. Like, you went on a ship from, did you go from Argentina or did you go from a different place? We actually like fly to Christchurch, New Zealand. And then, Ooh. Mm-hmm, and then you take an Air Force plane from New Zealand to McMurdo. So depending on like the plane, it can be uh, a C-17, which was like five hours or something like that. Or it can be eight hours. How many times have you been to Antarctica? I've been twice. Wow. Yeah, so I would have gone this year, but I just had a baby five months ago, so I couldn't leave him behind. Ah, congratulations on baby. But Antarctica, not that a baby isn't fierce, but (laughs) holy shit. So this, I'm sorry, I'm a nightmare, but it's fine. It's like, I'm having too much fun on this interview and you're Mm -hmm. just like fascinating. So does that mean, like, have you been to like every continent then since you've been to Antarctica? Yeah. Damn! I don't know (laughs) if we've ever had someone getting curious has been to every single one. You know, going to Antarctica is like, the closest I think you can come to going to another planet, but still staying on Earth. It's just an amazing place. And I loved going there and I'm really excited to go back. So, but you didn't take a ship. You flew to Christchurch and then you, like you land on like a ice sheet or something? Yeah. So you land on the ice shelf. It takes a really long time to slow down because there's like not not as much friction, you know? So you're just like, you land and it's like, and you're just like gliding for like, it feels like miles before you eventually slow down. How long would you say it is? Like, how long are you gliding? Like, like five minutes, two minutes? It felt like maybe two minutes or something like that. Because usually it's like 30, it's like not very long. No, no. And then you like, they open the door and you walk out and it's just, everything is so bright because it's just like 
white, you know, white ice. And then the sky is like, you know, reflecting off of it. And it's just like super bright. And then you get on this bus and you get transported to the station, which is like a few miles away. And sometimes there's like penguins just sitting on the ice that you can see. Like, you know, it's just really surreal. It's just like a really cool experience. Did you stay in the station thing? We did for about a week when you're getting ready to go out into the field. So the National Science Foundation runs like McMurdo Station and they want to make sure that everything's super safe. So you do this snow safety training thing. It's like how to avoid the crevasses or whatever. Yeah, and like how to build shelters in the field. Did you have to do that? There wasn't just like a pop-up tent? Well, there was these things called Scott tents. It's just like really like pointy yellow tent that you have to like put up and they're really hard to put up when it's super windy out, but you put those up and uh, usually people use those for shelter. But in case like there's a huge windstorm that would like blow your tent away, if it wasn't anchored well, then you have to figure out like how you're going to survive in that situation. So we actually like built a little snow shelter and I didn't spend the night in it. I spent the night in the Scott tent, but it's like good to know how to survive. So how many nights did you have to sleep in the field? So there was like a practice one at McMurdo and then we took a helicopter to Taylor Glacier and I spent about like three weeks on Taylor Glacier. Fuck camping. me. Both yeah. times or like... So the first time it was about three weeks and then the second time was about a week. It's just, it's cool because you basically like set your tent up on the ice. And the first night I remember like hearing these huge boom noises, like these cracks. And I was like super scared because I was like, what is that? I don't know what that is. And the next morning my advisor told me, she's like, oh yeah, that was the glacier. Like the glacier like cracks and moves like all the time. And I just had never heard it before because I think it was the first time I'd ever been on a glacier before. I'm going to share my screen really quick too, so I can show you a picture. You know, it's a really physical thing that we're doing. It's like we're drilling for these huge cylinders of ice and they're really heavy. Like the one that we're holding in this picture below here is like, it's over a hundred pounds. That's probably like six feet long and like one foot wide, maybe. Yeah. This one that we're holding is like over a meter long. Um, and so it's like over three feet long and it's like, I think it's 22 inches in diameter. Yeah, it's it's really big. So this is like physically exerting. And look at those mountains in Antarctica. Yeah, so it's like, you know, a lot of people think of Antarctica and they're like, oh, it's just like a frozen wasteland. But like where we were, it's surrounded by mountains and really pretty. I just, it took me a minute to like fully grasp that like, you went to literal Antarctica. And I would say that my only note for you as a person is this. Why is it not your first thing that you lead with in a party that you've been to every continent? If I'd <laughs> been to every continent, like, it would be the... I Like, I might get it tattooed somewhere. Like, it's above averagely extremely cool. Like, just letting... Okay. It's, like, fucking super duper cool. Okay, so now we're going back. So, did you ever find paleo dust in those ice samples? Yeah. So the first time we drilled for ice, it was like 30,000 year old ice to present day. And then the second time it was like 145,000 year old ice to about 120,000 years ago. So that covered a time period. It was the last warm period compared to today. And yeah, we, we found dust in there and we 
we uh, looked at its chemical composition and like it, the isotopes of those of those dust particles, and we figured out like where it came from. Was the warm period like? Do we know if it was like warmer than now? Like, not to say that global warming isn't happening, but like, could we maybe be okay or like super fucked? What do we think? It's called the last interglacial period. It was like the last warm period before today, and right now, you know, people's estimates are that it was warmer than currently but the orbital conditions were different. And so when I say orbital conditions, um, I'm talking about like the tilt of the Earth's axis, the shape of the rotation of the Earth around the sun, and like how wobbly Earth's orbit is. So like those three things are the primary controls on Earth's climate, and and they change on predictable timescales. So Like every 100,000 years or so, we're supposed to be alternating between a warm and a cold period based on those three different things. But because, you know, humans have shown up and started pumping a bunch of fossil fuels into the atmosphere, we're starting to change the radiative budget, the balance of Earth's radiation and like, you know, how much heat we're actually absorbing into the ocean. And the rate that we're doing it as humans is unprecedented. So our ability to predict how Earth's climate will adjust to that is like, we've never had to deal with this before because it's never happened before in Earth's history. So is that the most primary way that industrialization is like leaving its mark on nature? Is that like humans are pumping more carbon? It's carbon, right? You literally just said that, right? Yeah. like, like Carbon the dioxide. Carbon, yeah, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's also more black carbon. So like people can measure black carbon in paleoclimate records, in the ice core record. And you can see the start of industrialization happening because you have an increase in the amount of black carbon that you find in, in ice. And, you know, black carbon, not just in the atmosphere does it have effects, but also like if you deposit it on snow and ice surfaces, it lowers the albedo, which is like the reflectivity of it. So it's like dark. And, you know, if you wear like white on a summer day, like you stay pretty cool. But if you wear like a black shirt in the summer, you're like sweating through it. It's the same thing with black carbon. So if you have black carbon deposited on a snow or ice surface, it will absorb heat faster and it'll melt faster. Are there like particular places in the world that are hit harder by that increased black carbon and just increased carbon dioxide? Like, I hear you saying like wherever it's cold or like icy or white. So like mountaintops, like the poles, like colder areas. But is it like kind of everywhere? Like no one can really escape it if the entire atmosphere is changing. Yeah. So our atmosphere is like fairly well mixed. So if we're pumping in CO2, like you know, in North America, like we're going to see that in the rest of the atmosphere and black carbon too. the impact that it has changes depending on what latitude you're at. So like here in Southern California, we're not going to feel as much change in terms of climate as polar regions are going to experience this, this term Arctic amplification, which is basically that with climate change, um, the climate will change more dramatically and more rapidly at higher latitudes. So places like um, Alaska, like where I'm from. So it'll you're, you're going to have warmer conditions and the climate will change more quickly. You're Alaskan? Mm-hmm. Congratulations on your ranked choice voting system, though, that like delivered you from having to have fucking Sarah Palin be your representative. Like, go Alaska. Yeah, I know. I was really happy with it. We were really happy about Mary Altola. I love her. Yeah. 
So she's like the first Alaska Native woman. So we're we're just super excited. You know a lot about like Alaska politics. I'm surprised. Well, I know a yeah. lot about American politics and like Alaska is like, you know, okay. they, they're doing the damn thing. Okay, wait. So I think we have talked about like that dust and climate change do have a relationship and there's a way to like measure, you know, when things are warmer, like the dust like record goes up farther north than like what it did in like colder eras. Like there's a way for us or there's a way for scientists to track this. But my question is here, can dust be a part of any like climate solutions yeah, so there was like this hypothesis. It's called the the iron fertilization hypothesis. So marine phytoplankton they need iron in order to thrive, and the iron fertilization hypothesis was that dust, which is the primary form of iron that's delivered to the surface ocean far away from land, could serve as like this fertilization potential for phytoplankton. And there's actually been people who have like dumped tons of iron or tons of dust into the ocean to see how phytoplankton respond to it. And, you know, phytoplankton, they're primary producers, so they photosynthesize. So they like draw down carbon dioxide as they're, as they're thriving. And so you can change the greenhouse gas composition if you have a lot of phytoplankton productivity. So there's this idea that, you know, if you're generating more dust, um, and it's being transported to the surface ocean, you can actually fertilize the surface ocean and change the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere. Since then, there's been a lot of research that has shown that this is like more uh, nuanced than that. Like the type of iron that's in the dust really matters. So like the oxidation state of the iron, whether it's like reduced iron or oxidized iron matters. Because they dumped the whole bunch of dust in there and then nothing really, or like the phytoplankton were like, ew, we're dying. And then they were well, like, oh. I mean, it, it did work, right? So there was a phytoplankton bloom. And like, I don't know if you saw this in the news recently, but there were a bunch of wildfires in uh, Australia. Yes. And like, yeah, and there was like all this like soot that was basically like transported to the ocean and then deposited. And then you had a huge phytoplankton bloom there too. Does that mean that that part of the ocean just turns like super green or do you have to like measure it? Yeah, you can see it. You can see it in satellite imagery. Like it looks really, really green. The form that the iron is in and its composition matters a lot. And also the size of the particles too. So it's like if you have smaller particles from wildfires, um, you have a higher surface area. So they're able to dissolve more easily. Since that iron fertilization hypothesis there's been like a huge offshoot of like studies that have focused on like, okay, what time period are we looking at? Was there a change in dust flux of the amount of dust to the ocean during this time period? Does the type of iron that's delivered to the ocean matter? How is this iron accessed by phytoplankton? Just like a ton of questions have arisen from that research. So what would like the benefit of that be though? Like because the phytoplankton can like suck carbon out of the atmosphere or something. So it could potentially like lower the temperatures of the ocean or something if there was more phytoplankton. The idea is that like the phytoplankton would draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then like they die and like some of that carbon is exported to the deep ocean as they sink through the water column. So uh, it's like a removal of carbon from the atmosphere and put into a sink, which is at the bottom of the ocean. I hope that doesn't have any negative effects. Like, hopefully that's fine, right? It's probably fine, right? Yeah, I mean, eventually, like, that, you know, that sink will be recycled and it'll turn into a volcano and, like, the volcano will spit out carbon dioxide. 
So everything is like a cycle. Like we can never truly get rid of carbon uh, on earth unless we, um, you know, put it on a rocket ship. Right. Ah. So everything is connected and it goes through a cycle. Honey, I'm obsessed. It's a circle of life, as my husband would say. So you're minding your own business one day as like a young person in Alaska. And then you were like, I'm obsessed with dust. Like, what was your mole? Like, how did you become obsessed with like mineral dust? Yeah, it was kind of a really roundabout way. I was in college and I was pre-med actually. And then I like totally bombed my first chemistry exam. And I was like, okay, I need to switch majors. So I was a history major for a really long time. And I didn't know what I was going to do with that. And my dad actually suggested to me that I take an earth science class. And I was always like, I love science. I love looking at like figures and stuff like that for some reason. And then I loved being outside. So that's how I got interested in earth science. And then when I took those classes, I took paleoclimate and then I also took geochemistry. And when I applied to grad school, I just said I wanted to work on those two aspects of earth science. And it was actually my advisor, um, Sarah Asiego, who had this project in Antarctica looking at dust in the Taylor Glacier and asked me if I wanted to go. And I was like, yes, absolutely. You know, like polar regions are really important to me because I'm from Alaska and I care a lot about, you know, climate and how that's changing in polar regions. And the idea of going to Antarctica was like irresistible to me. I never knew like going into it that I was going to be so into dust. But like once that door was opened up and you see like how much influence dust has on Earth's climate, both like in modern day and then also in the past. It's just, yeah, you can create like a whole career out of it. Didn't even know about these connections. I have another Antarctica question. I'm sorry, the episode like diverged into like, what's it like to go to Antarctica? But it (laughs) happened. Could you drink coffee there? Like, is there a coffee machine or and there's no fucking coffee? Like, how do you have a warm drink? No, there's coffee like at McMurdo. There's even like a coffee bar there. But like in the field, we bring our own coffee. We make make our own coffee. And you put, like, do thermoses even work in Antarctica? Like, will it still keep it mm-hmm. hot for like five hours? Yeah, it'll keep it hot for five hours. And like, there's this thing that they make in like New Zealand and Australia. It's like it's basically sweetened condensed milk in like a gel form, but they put it into this like toothpaste container, and so you like squeeze it into your coffee. And like, yeah, uh, it's like. Pretty gross when you think about it, but it was actually really, really good because you have to eat like a ton of calories to stay warm in the field. So you're just like squeezing sweetened condensed milk goop into your coffee every day. Too bad there wasn't a Taco Bell in Antarctica because I could have totally like fuck up my Taco Bell and then like (laughs) just get my calories in. Like I'll take four Mexican pizzas, three double decker Mm -hmm. tacos, add chicken and sour cream. Thank you. Yeah, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Oh my God. Is there ever times where in your work like you come across like a climate change denier or somebody who like, are you ever able to like school someone on something like using like a small scale material that is dust? Like you ever been like, actually, isn't our scientist uh, XYZ? People say the rock record or the ice records, they don't lie. So there are things that we can measure and they go back through time, they're historical and we can say like, all right, we know it was cold during this time period. We know it was hot during this time period. For that climate related question, I think the biggest like smoking gun is, is like the carbon dioxide part of it. So talking about like how that varies naturally, like in the ice core record, 
versus like what the carbon dioxide level is right now. So we have like really good constraints on that from the ice core record. And when we're like way above what's what we're expected to be, it's like there's no doubt in my mind that like this is because of humans. Because Republicans are like, it's been getting warmer and colder on Earth for millions of years. And then you're like, actually, here's the ice and see how like you can see the, the presence of carbon. And it's like in this range. But then ever since our Industrial Revolution, it's been like this completely other range that we've never, ever seen before. So you're saying like there is clear evidence that we've never had this much uh, output of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah, like people think that we've had similar levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere like millions of years ago, but the rate that we've increased the carbon dioxide has like been unprecedented. In the end, you know, people are like, oh, well, how do we know that that carbon dioxide came from humans? And the answer is isotopes. So like you can measure the carbon isotope composition of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it's very similar to what fossil fuels are. So it's like, now we know we have a fingerprint. We know exactly where that carbon came from. And that's why I love isotopes. I think they're just like this super cool detective tool that you can use to say like, we know that it came from this place because the isotope composition matches. And like in Alaska, you know, people are like, well, I thought it was supposed to be you know, getting warmer in Alaska, but like we've got the most snow we've ever gotten this year. And it's like, well, when you're making snow, you have to evaporate that water from the from the ocean. And so it needs to be pretty warm. So like if you have a really snowy season, like a snowy winter season, like that actually means it's warmer, right? Oh, yeah, because once it gets like past a certain temperature, like it doesn't like because I remember that growing up in the Midwest, like if it gets too cold, then it doesn't even snow, even if there is like cloudy skies because it can actually just be like too cold to snow. Yeah. And like people in Alaska, I think a lot of them know that climate change is real and happening. I mean, there's been like unprecedented rates of forest fire there um, in the summer. And like, you know, that's related to how dry it is in the summer and then also temperature. So what questions are you still working through as a mineral dust particle scientist? So I actually have a student who is in Antarctica right now. Um, Austin Carter. He just had a TikTok video go viral. Actually, he like stuck a GoPro down a borehole in Antarctica, like a hundred meters deep. It's really cool. I can send it to you if you're interested. Yes. Yeah. So we're basically working on like these questions related to like whether dust fertilization in the distant ocean can actually impact global carbon cycles in a way that would like significantly influence Earth's climate. We are also thinking about like the modern day climate and like we're thinking about glacial retreat. And as glaciers retreat, you have this exposure of a lot of fine grain sediment that is fresh and unweathered and has a lot of iron in it and a lot of bioavailable iron. And we're interested in like trying to figure out like, okay, so is this going to be good for, you know, phytoplankton um, productivity? Is this going to be like a fertilization uh, impact if it's deposited in the surface ocean, like what happens to that dust? Is the iron in that dust available for phytoplankton to use? Are there microbes in the ocean that are making it easier for that iron to be dissolved? So more like finer scale questions about the chemical composition of the dust and like what happens after it gets into the ocean. Which is kind of telling because you're not saying like if it gets into the ocean, like because it's the glaciers are going back so fast, like it's like when 
that stuff gets into the ocean. Yeah. It's like when it gets into the ocean, like what happens next? And like, you know, the Antarctic stuff is like, we are looking further back in time when we know that Earth's climate changed really dramatically. And like people think that dust had a big influence on Earth's climate, but we want to look a little bit deeper and we want to look at like, okay, is there actually a lot of iron that's available for phytoplankton to use in this in this dust are people doing that like in the north pole too like are people doing like ice cores in in the north pole or is it like more of like an antarctica thing the longest ice core records are in antarctica like the two million year old records are in antarctica people do ice core research in greenland but those records don't go past the last interglacial period just because it's warmer in greenland and then you also have higher precipitation rates so like the ice flows out faster so you don't preserve ice as long there and they don't want to disturb santa yeah exactly like because he's busy like throughout the year yeah so you have to like give him a space yeah they want to give santa a wide berth like mrs claus doesn't like that if you're like all up in her backyard like doing fucking scientific research now someone wants to go do a dust trap in their backyard or figure out like more about dust like in the dust that they interact with like are we just like ordering a dust trap and like setting it up in our house or like in our backyard or something Yeah, so you can do a backyard one pretty easily. You can basically buy a bunt cake pan, so like a Teflon-coated bunt cake pan, and you can fill it with marbles, and you can put it on like a post in your backyard. And what happens is like the dust will will fall on the marbles, and it'll kind of like sift through the marbles and be trapped at the bottom. And the marbles prevent the dust from being lifted back out of the bunt cake pan. So you can leave it out there for like a month or three months or however long. And then you can go out there and get your bunt cake pan, fill it with water, and then drain it into like a cup or something. And then you can let the water evaporate and you'll be left behind with the dust. So yeah, you can do it yourself in your backyard if you're interested. So it doesn't matter if it rains because like you're going to get it wet at the end anyway. If it does rain, you want to make sure that the pan doesn't overflow because then you might lose some dust. But yeah, I mean, it's fine if it does. So what do you hope listeners take away from your work and dust more generally moving forward? I'll tell you, for me, it's how important it is. I learned how important, I didn't even know. And now I know more. Yeah, good. I'm glad you think that. I mean, I think before I started doing this research and some people like I've talked to, they're like, why dust? Why would you be interested in studying that? And I think like as I've gotten more into it, I've realized uh, how large of a role dust plays on Earth's climate, not just through like the fertilization potential of the ocean, but also the fertilization potential on land. And then also like dust in the atmosphere. So we talked about atmospheric rivers and like delivering huge amounts of water to Southern California. That's largely because of dust transport from Asia. And then I also talked about dust in the atmosphere, you know, scattering incoming solar radiation or making it warmer on Earth's surface. Thinking about like the role of something so tiny on Earth's climate is something that I I just want listeners to take away and that like everything's connected. So it's a cycle. Ah, oh my God. I had so much fun today. I cannot even stand it. Sarah Ahrens, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We are so grateful for you and your time and for your research and for sharing it so kindly with us. We love you to pieces and thank you for coming on Getting Curious. Dr. Sarah Ahrens, yeah. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Sarah Ahrens. You can find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Free by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious2JVN for more. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. <laughs>